0: This is Lewis Lapham for Lapham's Quarterly, and this is The World in Time. Lead support for this podcast has been provided by Elizabeth Lizette Prince. Additional support was provided by James J. Jimmy Coleman, Jr. Today on The World in Time, I'm talking with Richard White, the prize-winning Stanford historian, talking about his new book, The Republic for Which It Stands, The United States During Reconstruction in the Gilded Age, 1865-1896. This is a truly marvelous history, Richard, more revealing and instructive about our present circumstance in 2018 than the entire corpus of the daily news and fake news. Why don't you begin with a brief overview contained in the introduction and the conclusion, the tension between a free labor republic and a wage labor plutocracy, and then we can talk about particular events, issues, individuals that you find fundamental to the telling of your story. Sure, I'll be glad to, Lewis.
1: Well, the book begins with the end of the Civil War and the conviction of the victorious Republicans, the victorious North, that they had just succeeded in creating a free labor society, that the great struggle of American history up to that time had been between um, the slave South and the free labor North, and it had ended with the free labor North utterly triumphant that as they saw it they could now remake the South and West in their image. And what would come out is a society which the simplest way to talk about it is it would be a collection of Springfields, Abraham Lincoln's hometown. A society without the so called dangerous classes, the very rich, the very poor, a middling society, in which people would be rewarded for their labor and competition would keep the very rich from ever arising. What they ended up doing was creating a society which they had never imagined. What had been a largely Protestant country became a very diverse country, both Catholics and Jews. Um, what they had thought was going to be a free labor republic became a society which was dominated by wage laborers, which they thought was so um, dangerous that it would perhaps endanger the republic itself that they um, imagined a society in which progress would yield more and more of the same thing, more and more of replicating the, the free labor north. Instead, what they got is large cities, an industrial society, a society that were amazed by its productivity, but also they were very much alarmed by the, by the dangers that it created. So what you see here is a kind of tragedy, a group of people who think that they have won the future, and it turns out that the future would they themselves create, is going to be very, very different from anything they had imagined.
0: Give us a few statistics about the difference between population and gross national product in 1865 when your book begins and 1896 when the book ends.
1: In terms of scale, the Americans were right. This, this was an amazing transformation. Um, at the very beginning, um, the United States had been an agricultural economy, a very, a very prosperous agricultural economy. We had not been an industrial society. By the end of the century, we are the largest industrial society in the world. We are bigger than Germany. We are bigger than Great Britain. That we are the biggest coal producers. We are becoming the biggest iron, steel producers. Our gross national product um, doubles and then doubles again. It's going to arise increased by about 40-fold just before the Civil War until the turn of the century, that any statistic that you measure in terms of industrial output, agricultural output, the United States is leading the world. So this is something that Americans are immensely proud of, this kind of productivity, this kind of expansion, which is not just an expansion that you can measure by the amounts of goods that you make, but the United States for the first time really secures control of the entire Continent. Before this, we had claimed the entire continent, but we really had not controlled it. And by the end of the period, we had really conquered Indian nations. We had subordinated Indian nations. The continental United States, as we now know it, was going to be ours, and we were expanding overseas. Um, our population grows dramatically. Largely, even though our birth rate is beginning to fall, immigration more than makes up for it. We become a mass immigrant nation really for the first time in our history. We did immigrants before, but never before on this scale. That our largest cities by the end of the century are going to be dominantly, or the population is going to be composed of immigrants and the children of immigrants. They're going to be the major constituent part of the population. So over and over again, how you measure these things, the united states is is growing. this does not mean necessarily that things are getting better for individual citizens, but when you look at the country as a whole and you only, and you want to measure it by economic statistics, there's no doubt that it had achieved a tremendous growth.
0: We are really talking about a period of only thirty years, but the enormous social and technological change makes the world of eighteen ninety six Very far remote from the world of 1866,
1: right? It is. You're you're perfectly right. Americans had always assumed that the um, world of their children would be different from the world of their fathers, but not in any fundamental way. They thought that they were going to have, as I said, a Protestant free labor republic. And when you looked around the world in 1890s, they expected it to be much like the world that it produced Abraham Lincoln. They expected Springfield and what they got was Chicago, um, and they had never, ever anticipated that. And that becomes the thing that most disrupts the country. There's there's this feeling that something is being lost, and they can't quite put their uh, finger on what it is that is causing things to change. Um, And that creates a great deal of scapegoating. And then, as now, the easiest people to blame it on would be um, immigrants. And there's going to be a great anti-immigrant reaction in the late 19th century.
0: But we begin to get a lot of class conflict in the 1870s very quickly after the civil war. I mean, Twain and uh, his partner published The Gilded Age in 1873 and the if I read you correctly, the 1870s are when we really begin to get the class uh, conflict
1: Yeah, and the the big change is, again, something nobody had anticipated. It was um, the rise of wage labor. And I think this is the hardest thing for readers to grasp. We live in a world where most people will work for wages. Um, They don't anticipate anything any different. But that was not the expectation of most Americans in the mid 19th century. What they thought is they might work for wages for a while. It's a stage of life. But essentially, you're going to be independent. You're going to start an independent business. You're going to be a farmer. You're going to be a craftsman. You are not going to be somebody who depends on others for your living. But by the 18th century, 70s, it becomes clear for the first time that the majority of American men and many American women are going to depend on wages not just as a phase of life, but as a condition of life. And that changes everything. Once, in fact, the society becomes divided between those who employ labor. And those who have to labor for wages, then there is a fundamental division between citizens of a kind that Americans had not anticipated. This is the great fear. I mean, the, the event of the 19th century that most alarms Americans does not even take place in the United States. It's the Paris Commune, and they see the destruction of Paris, the fighting between classes in Paris. That they see this is the future. And when they see strikes break out in 1877, what they're anticipating is that the American commune is going to come. Until the Bolshevik Revolution in 1919, there was no way to scare the American middle classes more than to talk about the commune. But the commune was unimaginable until you had wage labor, until you had industrial labor, industrialization, and until you have a world which consists of those who pay wages and those who work for wages.
0: One of the writers that you I, I think rely on is william dean howells and howells you say published three essays in between 1894 and 96 one of which is are we a plutocracy which is that is the the question mm-hmm. you just the plutocracy has to arise out of wage labor
1: a plutocracy has to and it's it's a kind of it's the kind of inequality which alarms americans Going into this period, there had been a belief that as long as you have a competitive economy, the competition itself will prevent the rise of the very, very wealthy. So what they find is an economy which can't be reduced down to simply competitive or not competitive. In some ways, it's very, very competitive. But in other ways, government is giving favors to certain producers. Carnegie Steel gets the tariff, the railroads get land grants, and you can go on and on. And what you begin to see is a group of what's seen as a favored class, a class which is going to be favored by the government and which is going to begin to amass a kind of power private power not seen in the country before. It's the kind of thing which had been warnings about. Andrew Jackson had warned about it, but now they're seeing this special favored class which has an influence in Washington and in the state houses, which makes them different from all other citizens. And what they begin to reap in the eyes of most Americans is a set of special privileges which makes them immensely wealthy, fabulously wealthy, beyond which anybody had ever imagined before. And it's not just one, two, or three People, it begins to seem to be a class of people. And as they see it, as those groups rise, other groups fall. Other groups cannot attain the kind of independence that they thought of as a kind of American birthright. And so this is what this sense of crisis is going to be about. And this plutocracy is what Howells writes about. And and Howells himself, I'm very sympathetic to Howells, but this is one point where I differ with him a little bit. Howells says, well, we're all plutocrats because everybody wants to try to gain money. Well, I think there's a difference between trying to gain money to have what used to be called a competency and trying to gain money like Carnegie, which is more money than you can ever dispose of in your lifetime. and so these become things which are just new. They're just they're just new creatures in the American um, landscape. And the Americans have to struggle to figure out what to do about them. But I think by the end of the century, when you look at novels, when you look at politics, inequality is the thing that scares them the
0: most. Do you realize, Richard, I mean, listening to you for the last five minutes, describe the late 19th century, do you realize how... Much of what you just said could be applied to our present circumstance?
1: Yeah, th- this is what was so eerie about writing the book. I'm writing about a period which in many ways is is past. It's different from our own. But I agree with you. When I'd, I'd start looking at these things, seeing these issues, I'd, I'd spend my day with 19th century figures who would be talking about inequality, who would be talking about immigration, who would be talking about abuses of power, who would be talking about corruption, who would be talking about the untoward influence of business on American life. And I put this down, and I go back and listen to the evening news, and I hear the same things, a different context, a different period. But, yes, it's, it's, it's quite eerie how many of these things are so similar to what goes on today. But my job as a historian is to emphasize both the things that are similar the things that recur, but also that we are living in a different time, too. And, and the pastness of the past still remains important to me.
0: But I'm, I'm just saying that as a reader, it, it fascinates me.
1: Yeah, not, it's, it's not only you, lose as a reader, it's me as a writer. <laughs> I mean, sometimes I was not struggling to create these parallels. I was getting smacked in the face with these parallels.
0: If I were to ask you, OK, across this 30 year period, who were the individuals, figures that impressed you the most? I mean, there. I mean, this is a period that is filled with uh, marvelous uh, characters of all kinds. I mean, it's Buffalo Bill Cody and it's William Dean Howells and General Dan Sickles and Carnegie and Vanderbilt and on and on it goes. And so, but if you had to pick three or four, who would you? Uh, Go for.
1: I mean, the, the people who most impressed me—the one who had probably the least influence on the period in terms of shaping events, but shaping thinking in other ways, he was quite influential—is William Dean Howells, who's a novelist I read in college. And I don't know if people read Howells very much anymore. But Howells was more than just a novelist. He was a a very influential editor of Harper's, of The Atlantic. And he's somebody who has a great deal to do with how Americans begin to conceive of who they are and what they're striving for. And what makes Howells so impressive to me is that he starts out with a series of fairly glib liberal beliefs in the sense of 19th century liberalism. He believes in small government. He believes in laissez-faire. He believes that in fact competition is the cure to any kind of economic problem. And what he recognizes is the world goes on that those beliefs, which he carried out of the civil war are simply insufficient, that they don't describe the world he lives in and they can't explain what's going on around him. And so I use Howells in the book as somebody who's smart, who's sincere, who I think is basically honest and who can be very brave, struggling to make sense of and to live in in a moral way in the world that he finds himself in in the late 19th century and trying to persuade others to think about things the way that he does. Another figure who I think is, there's two, I'll pair it together, um, though they're very different, are going to be two of the most adroit politicians of the 19th century, though neither one could vote and neither one could hold office. So I'll, put, I'll put three there together. And it's Jane Addams, um, and it's going to be Ida P. Wells, and it's going to be Frances Willard. And what they do is they mobilize women's moral authority in a way that really influences politics, so that a whole series of reform movements of the late 19th century are going to be led and driven forward by women, even though women at that time, by and large, could not vote and could not hold public office. So they're going to be three who are going to be very, very um, important During this period, in terms of politics, you know, I think another one would be Henry George, who's who's largely forgotten now. And and if he's remembered is in terms of his single tax, which in the United States never has much effect. But um, Henry George is somebody who really influences American politics in fundamental ways because he strikes at inequality. The 1% is actually a phrase from Henry George that is picked up again in the late 20th, early 21st century. So Henry George is going to be another figure. The hard part for me to find in this is there are no presidential figures. There are no politicians who I can really think of as dominating the age, Um, and it really even being in control of events. You know, I don't buy the recent attempts to rehabilitate Ulysses S. Grant, and if there's anybody who really is going to come in, it's going to be um, the figures in the election of 1896, not because any of them alone are dominant. McKinley and Bryan certainly have their flaws, but what McKinley and Bryan both realized, no matter who runs that election is that things are going to change in 1896. Whether you're a Democrat, whether you're a Republican, whether you're a populist, everybody agrees that in the crisis the country is facing, an economic crisis and a social crisis, the solution is going to be through the federal government, that the federal government and government in general has to be the tool which American democracy is going to use to try to win back the country that they think they're losing. And that is a fundamental shift.
0: And that shift is... In- people's minds in 1896 that's why you end this book with 1896
1: No, that's what that's why i end it i mean in 1896 it's It's going to be clear the thrust of the future. At that point, the emergence of the progressives in the 20th century, um, if not inevitable, it's going to be very, very hard to avoid. The issues which have come up in the um, end of the Gilded Age in the 1890s are going to be the issues the government is going to try to have to solve, the issues of inequality, the issues of class conflict, the issues of, of rampant private economic power. These are the issues of immigration. These are the issues which have been put on the table. And now what the solution is going to be, people are over quarreling about what, who should solve them. The federal government should solve them. They're going to be political issues.
0: That's how those issues are formulated, uh, both by Teddy Roosevelt, the Republican, and Wilson, the, the Democrat in the first years of the 20th century, right?
1: That's right. Um, What you have is there is, in a a way that sometimes historians emphasize, sometimes they neglect, a transition between anti-monopolism, as I call it, in the late 19th century and progressivism in the early 20th century. And that some of the people, both um, Wilson and Roosevelt, had been alarmed by populism, had been alarmed by anti-monopolism. But in a lot of ways, they adopt most of those concerns and try to moderate the approaches to them, but nonetheless see that these are problems which are going to have to be solved. So so I think there's a very, very clear connection between the two, and that Roosevelt and Wilson both cut their political teeth during the Gilded Age. They emerge as major figures during the Progressive Era, but they had political experience which starts in the Gilded Age.
0: Would you say, I mean, are... News media often gets carried away and compares our present circumstance to a second Gilded Age. But all the issues that you put on the table at the end of of, in 1896, they're still there.
1: They are. They're still there. Um, And the odd thing is, is I, I think there's a lot of validity to the second Gilded Age comparison. I think you can get carried away with it, but I think there's a lot of validity there. What's odd to me as a historian is that we thought we'd solved most of these.
0: Yes, things. but we haven't.
1: We haven't. No, they come back. But I think they come back because, in fact, we've instituted a series of policies um, which are reminiscent of the Gilded Age in which we let go for a long time. I think one of the things that the, the Gilded Age struggles to do is to have a kind of economic regulation. That we can't have, simply have unharnessed um, private Economic power But in fact What we've gone back Is um, removing regulations That uh, You know The Gilded Age Said that What you're going to Have to have Is a kind of Governance That's going to be Based on bureaucracy Paid experts Who are going to Begin to regulate All kinds of Public problems And what we have To get rid of Which was Nineteenth century Called fee-based Governance Where you simply Sublet the government To private parties who Who will Operate it for a profit The way you operate Prisons for a profit The way mercenaries Operate in our wars for a profit, that those things were only going to lead to corruption, but we're back there again. Um, so the reason the two areas can seem so similar is a whole set of policies which were repudiated in the Progressive Era and which the Gilded Age struggled against have been brought back as solutions in the twenty first century. And it's no surprise at all to me that what we get is exact is problems very, very similar to those we faced in the Gilded Age. Problems of corruption, problems of inequality, um, all the kinds of things which make the era Seems so reminiscent today.
0: It's just a, a remarkable book. I mean, I, I, I had that feeling of déjà vu all the way through it. I mean, it's <laughs> <laughs> no, it,
1: it is. I've never, I've never <laughs> written a book quite like this. And again, it, you know, it, it begins to break. Down, But then I don't know if it, how much parts are going to be. We're too close to the present era. Um, yeah. You know, this was an era of weak presidents, of presidents who, in fact, um, could not really institute stable policies. Is that going to be true now? I don't know. I mean, we've just seen a... a point in which administrations change and policies just turn on their heads. Um, This will remain for historians in the future to begin to say, well, the politics ended up being very different in the second Gilded Age and the first Gilded Age. But it's, um, you know, it's something that we're gonna have to wait and see.
0: Well, in the meantime, we have your very, very fine book. And I uh, thank you, Richard. Uh, Thank you for talking with us today. And I hope Everybody listening goes out and, and reads Richard White, The Republic for which it stands, really brilliant stuff, Richard. thank you. Well,
1: thank you, Lewis. I very much enjoyed talking to you
0: Lapham 's Quarterly brings voices from the past up to the microphone of the present, save more than thirty percent off the cover price, and subscribe today. For only $49, visit laphamsquarterly.org slash podcast for more details.